One of the most important numbers in your life isn't your social security number or your birthday or your lucky number. It's the number 168. And that is a number that's important for everybody. And it's important because it's the exact number of hours that God puts in to each and every week. 168 hours. There are 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. And that means uh, when you multiply those numbers together, you get 168. You only get 168 hours a week. That's all the president gets. That's all the pope gets. That's all the postal weights get. One, six, eight. And guess what? That's all King Solomon got. And it's kind of scary. Put yourself in his sandals for a minute. He's stepping into some really big sandals of his father David. The new king had overwhelming responsibilities, but by wise organization, he was able to accomplish many significant things, including possibly the most significant by far was overseeing the building of the temple, the first temple in Jerusalem. So in First Kings chapter 4 today, we're going to look at how Solomon wisely managed his time and his tasks. And we will learn some lessons that will help us organize and think about our lives more wisely to the glory of God. But uh, let me remind you what we've been seeing in the book of First Kings. We come to First Kings chapter 4 today and we see Solomon wisely organizing his government and his, his life. But back in chapter 1, several weeks ago now, we saw that doing God's will, accomplishing God's will isn't easy and it's not hassle-free. We saw David dying, Solomon, the anointed one to become the next king, facing opposition that involved initiative and uh, righteous action on the part not only of Solomon but of several other people. You can't sit soaking sour and uh, kind of cruise through life even when you're pursuing and seeking uh, things at the very essence of God's uh, will in our lives. So uh, this idea that when I'm right in the center of God's will, everything's going to be easy and smooth and there'll be no obstacles and difficulties or if something's difficult to achieve, God must not be in it. So let's just stop trying to put Bible study in our church or let's stop trying to do evangelism because it's hard and it's not always easy and there are complications. That's not a good yardstick for deciding uh, what you ought to be doing. Doing God's will isn't easy, and really it's in a fallen world, it's never hassle-free. That was chapter 1 of 1 Kings. Chapter 2, we saw that justice isn't pretty, and therefore, to be understood, it must be put in its context. We were thinking about capital punishment specifically in that text, and uh, in order to consolidate and stabilize his new kingdom, Solomon had to have three different men executed, and that's not a pretty picture. 
But justice isn't pretty, and so to be understood, it must be put in its context. Because justice delayed is denied, and justice denied leads to much uglier things. Chapter 3, God gives wisdom to believers then, Solomon's day, and now, as we think and live in the fear of the Lord. Solomon, as a prophet, priest, king, people in those categories in the Old Testament would often, not not often, it was still very unique, but would receive certain um, direct entrees uh, to communicating with God that the average New Testament church age believer doesn't have access to, although we have the finished canon of Scripture and the permanently indwelling Holy Spirit, uh, and we have many benefits and blessings and really advantages over quote-unquote, the average Old Testament believer. But we saw how Solomon had a unique audience with God in a dream. and uh, God told him, ask me what you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon uh, asked for wisdom and to get off to a good start because he wanted to do a great job leading God's people. And today, we, uh, as New Testament believers, have statements such as uh, we find in James chapter 1 that says, uh, if any man wants wisdom, needs wisdom, seeks wisdom, let him ask of God, but don't ask with a double mind. And in that context of James 1, we're particularly talking about wisdom or insight and perspective that will allow us to continue to trust and obey, to continue to glorify God even in the crucible of difficult, painful suffering. And as we seek and submit to God's will in the fear of the Lord, I don't care what our circumstances are. When our heart is attuned in that direction, God will give us the wisdom, the perspective we need one day at a time, one hour at a time, one minute at a time, one moment at a time to glorify Him through whatever our our crisis or difficulty or circumstances might be. So doing God's will isn't easy. Justice isn't pretty. God gives wisdom to believers then and now. And um, this uh, this message in chapter 4 is uh, all about wising up, getting organizing, getting organized, and getting out of God's way. We have 34 verses, but only three units of thought. First, we will see the organization of the nation through Solomon, verses 1 through 19. Then we'll see the blessing of the nation through Solomon in verses 20 through 28, and finally the blessing of the world then and now through Solomon, verse 29 through 34. So let's look at that first portion of this passage, verses 1 through 19, the organization of the nation through Solomon. Uh, When you break down these verses, and I'm just going to tell you straight up, this is a long list of very difficult for me anyway, to pronounce names. So rather than me struggling through that, uh, what I want to do is just kind of analyze what's going on here and talk about a point, a premise, and a principle. Uh, the first six verses, verses 1 through 6, as we're thinking about the organization of the nation through Solomon, talks about uh, certain key leaders associated with the central government in Jerusalem, kind of like Solomon's cabinet, as it were. That's verses 1 through 6. 
And then verses 7 through 19, we have a list of deputies for the 12 provinces. Today we'd call them governors for the states, although we have 50 states today in the United States. Um, Solomon had 12 states or districts led by governors that were called deputies. So that's the content um, analyzed. But the point is, Solomon inherited a great kingdom from his father. But he made a good thing even better by establishing a well-organized central government. It's, it's, this isn't a perfect analogy, of course, but uh, David kind of ruled with kind of an Articles of Confederation kind of structure, and Solomon moved uh, that and morphed that into more of a constitutional structure. And it wasn't a constitutional structure. I know that. He was an absolute monarch. But as far as having a centralized government in one place where the king uh, could uh, administer the country through and in that, and then having states or, or in this case, uh, districts that would report uh, to that central government, and they, or they were all interacting together. So you have a centralized government, but you also have uh, local um, state governments also that are in touch with the uh, people that are in those particular areas, that kind of thing. But the point is Solomon made a good thing even better in, in this structure, and this allowed him, Solomon, to devote um, a lot of his time to overseeing certain building projects with the temple, the construction of the temple being the most important. So that's kind of the point. Now, the premise is Solomon realized it was not possible for him to have hands-on control of every single good and necessary thing necessary for uh, his government to uh, work to ensure some kind of stable society and a just society. Therefore, Solomon put qualified and responsible people under him, both at the federal level and the state level, as it were, to lead and operate specific aspects of his, gov- of his government. And so the principle is we need to wise up and delegate and or accept and appreciate delegated roles around us uh, today. Delegation is not just for kings in the 10th century B.C. It's for us too. None of us have an unlimited amount of time, uh, unlimited uh, talent and uh, treasure. And we're not even under any moral obligation to try to do everything everyone around us expects us to do. You see in uh, the life of Christ uh, many times, but in Luke 4, for instance, the crowd he's been ministering to in Galilee wants him to stay and continue to do things for them. They have a long to-do list for the Lord Jesus. And he says, you know, no, I'm, I've, I've done what I need to do here right now. I'm going to go down the road to people who haven't seen me yet. I'm going to, uh, I've got priorities for myself. Uh, as the one sent by the Father, and I'm not going to let other people, even well-meaningly, kind of subvert or uh, intercept or change those priorities. Now, uh, when we talk about delegation, we tend to think of uh, me having a big thing I want to do and getting uh, Michael Birch or uh, Andrew Bowers or Debbie Corbin to do part or a lot of it for me instead of me. And, yeah, that can mean that. Delegation can mean that. But think about you and your, uh, where you work or your family or your church family. Um, 
there are certain things that are delegated for you to other people because you don't have the time to do them, you don't have the skills to do them, or the aptitude to do them. Uh, an example would be me and the worship team. Uh, I've never been on the worship team, and there are reasons for that. Number one, I'm way too important and way too busy to be involved. No, I'm kidding. That's a terrible thing to say. It's a joke, folks. Uh, no, uh, my problem is, uh, while I can make a joyful noise most of the time, I don't sing very well, and uh, it would just be, uh, let's say, a distraction uh, for the uh, other people on the worship team, and it might uh, cause... Uh, um, it might be difficult for other people in the congregation to con- concentrate on the Lord and the meaning of the lyrics if I was up there trying to sing. So even though I didn't specifically say, because I can't do the worship, uh, be on the worship team, I've got to delegate that to somebody else, I didn't do that directly. We just had James and other very talented people, uh, for obvious reasons, step forward to, to be uh, in charge of our worship function in that sense, musical worship. Um, but here's the thing. I can't do that because I don't have the skills, but I should participate in that and, and respond to their leading of worship and appreciate them enough to a, pray for them regularly and to go out of my way uh, for me from the pulpit and one-on-one to thank them and, and let them know how much I appreciate them doing that in part because I can't do it. One reason I really appreciate them being able to do it so well is because I can't do it. I can't play an instrument. I don't sing well. That kind of thing. So when I talk about delegation, don't just think about specific things at, at your job where you've uh, uh, sp- spread the uh, workload around to four other people. Uh, that would include that kind of thing. But anytime you're involved in an extended family or uh, a business, uh, many of your business applications and situations, and many of the things that you'll see happening in this church are things you can't do or won't do or don't have time to do or don't have the talents to do, but other people do them. And just because you don't do them doesn't mean you shouldn't appreciate the benefits and the blessings other people's works send your way. And you ought to go out of your way to pray for those people and to, when appropriate, encourage them and give them well-deserved compliments uh, I think that's very important. But as far as delegating and thinking about life, for me, one one, one way I like to think about life that I, I think helps me organize things a little bit, and you might uh, consider using something like this if you don't have anything um, concrete you're using right now. So we're talking about delegation and wisely using our time and not spreading ourselves too thin or feeling like we have to do everything everybody expects us to do every time. Uh, I like to think of... Uh, the ultimate priorities in a Christian's life is A, B, C, is capital A, capital B, capital C. And I would say, number one, your number one priority is to the Lord, being centered on Him, being a, a, abiding in Christ, walking in the Spirit, living in the fear of the Lord, loving Him and loving other people, allowing your love for Him to free you up to love other people. So your number one priority is getting the Lord Jesus Christ in the center of the pie chart of your life, of your time, talent, and treasure pie chart. He's got to be centered there. He's not centered there if you're just, just giving him a slice of the pie. Uh, that is not normative Christianity. That's not a Christian walk. That's a Christian crawl. Okay. So A, getting the Lord centered, getting the Lordship of Christ in the very center of our pie chart as believers. Number two, B, I would say is your family slash your job. 
Now, I know a lot of us tend to think our job kind of is a necessary evil, uh, and uh, I want to blow through that as quickly as possible so I can spend time with my family. But, you know, we're designed to work. We're designed to be productive. And we're also told, uh, fathers and husbands are told, of, uh, even unbelievers in First Timothy says, if, you, if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse pragmatically, not theologically. But if a be- believer doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. Because even unbelievers, most of them know, uh, you got to wake up, go to work, because baby needs a pair of clothes, baby needs a pair of shoes, pair of clothes, a pair of shoes, uh, needs clothes, needs food. Uh, you need, got to put a roof over your head, got to get cable TV, got to get tattoos, got to get uh, what else we need, uh, whatever else uh, extra stuff people. And I buy extra stuff too. I buy golf balls and things like that. But, uh, yeah, A is getting centered on the Lord. B is prioritizing your family and slash your work. And I integrate those on purpose because uh, you're designed to be productive and use your gifts, but you're also working in part to provide for your family and it's possible to kind of worship your work, uh, work at your play, and play at your worship. And then you get your priorities all messed up. So it takes wisdom. takes a lot of prayer. You probably ought to talk to your wife or your husband, uh, and even some of your older kids, to help you get a fix on how you're uh, balancing your work and your family. But those those two together as a complex, as a larger unit, is the way I tend to think about that second most important priority in my life. And, um, you know, you won't believe this, even though we only work one hour a week, right, when you're in the ministry. Uh, a lot of ministers have marital or family problems because they almost live as if they're married to the ministry. And, um, you know, uh, I never thought of the ministry as a job. And when I first went into the ministry in full-time, in August of 1982, I had no desire, uh, no desire at all to become rich or famous. And, you know, so far, that's working really well for me. But um, it has vocational aspects, but it's not a job. On the other hand, what you sometimes don't realize is that we, James and I both are on call 24-7, 365. I've had people call me on, on Christmas Day, on my anniversary. On Christmas Day, when I'm 500 miles away with my extended family, I've had people call me about heart-wrenching issues and, uh, can be in the middle of the night and things like that. So we're, we never totally are off. You never totally are not on call anyway. But, uh, it is possible to kind of make the ministry, uh, an idol, to kind of elevate the ministry, especially the way you're perceived by those you minister to as a priority a, bigger than even, uh, A, which should be being abiding in Christ. So, uh, don't think we ministers don't have to deal with those kind of issues and try to get a balance there too. So A is being centered on Christ. Your number one priority is your walk and connection with the Lord as a believer. Number two, your family slash your job and how you figure out that interaction. And that will change during phases of life and during certain crises at work. Maybe you have to do uh, a lot more than you normally would. But over the long haul, you're going to have to realize uh, your family is more important than your job. And then the third priority, if I can say this, ABC, is your connection with the Church of Jesus Christ slash your local church. And I, I thought that, and I said that before I became a full-time minister. When I was just a college student or a dental student uh, or working in a law firm, I, I prioritized church, uh, and my wife helped me to do that long before we knew we were going to be 
um, pastoring in, uh, in churches. So I do think that's very important. Uh, and that's the first level of priority. I think you've got to prioritize, prioritize those first. Second level of priority would be things that you want to do, you'd enjoy doing, um, that can really make a difference or that are really important under the first three priorities. And I don't want to say these are just things like being a link one mentor or coaching a kid's soccer team, and not just because you want them to play positions well and hustle, uh, but whether or not you win a lot of games, just to connect with and affirm these people and, and kind of do a discipleship kind of a ministry relationally with those people. Uh, so those are, those are pretty cool things to do, and you might say those are pretty significant, aren't they, at one level. But for some of you, it's just playing a racquetball three times a week or whatever with a couple of your buddies. That's fine. That's something that you enjoy doing as long as you can do those things and not take away the time and energy you need uh, to do A, B, and C. I think that's fine. I think some people can do 15 such things under A, B, and C, and some of us can only do three or four or five. But uh, that would be the that would be the trick. Don't let your link one mentoring or you leading a Boy Scout troop being more important than your connection with the Lord, your family, your job, or your local church. Okay, so those are two levels of priority. And I think as you kind of think about your life and organize your time, as Solomon's thinking about his life and organizing his government, uh, I think those are helpful categories. And then I would add a third category, which is a separate lesser category uh after you've kind of if you've totally maxed out on the second level of the uh extra things you want to do and can do and would enjoy doing under abc uh you may at that point not have a lot of time for extra stuff beyond that but there may be some things um that aren't super significant uh that are kind of extra that you you enjoy doing, and you just want to add to your schedule on a regular basis, but make sure they don't take away from Category 1 or 2. And if I can say one more thing about Category 1, the capital A, B, and C, uh, being centered and abiding in Christ, uh, figuring out a, a good biblical balance where you can give your very best both to your family and your job and realize that those two are related kind of organically and to the Church of Jesus Christ, capital C, and your local church, I would say... Think in terms of those first level of categories as things that only you can do. Now, how, how dare you say only you can do bread or only I can do? God can do anything. Uh, you're right. And he doesn't need my help or your help to get everything accomplished he wants to in his plan. But he allows us to get between the lines, using a baseball analogy, and actually uh, pitch some innings, uh, get some at-bats on his team. And we should never take that for granted. But there, humanly speaking at least, there are some things that only I can do. I, only I can be Debbie McCoy's husband, okay? Unless she wants to change that at some point. Uh, only I can be Cooper or Peters or Vivian or uh, Lincoln or Eloise or Violet's pawpaw, at least on this side of the family. They have several pawpaws on the other side of the family. But there are certain things only I can do. Uh, at this point in my life, in this season of my life, only I can be the pastor of Tanglewood Bible Fellowship. So there's certain things I get to do because I'm a pastor. There's certain things I have to do because I'm a pastor. And I'm the only one who can do those things uh, in, in, in certain senses. So I think all of that is kind of a good way, at least helps me, to kind of think about wising up, getting out of God's way, 
not trying to do a lot of stuff I don't need to do, I don't have time to do, don't have time, don't have the energy to do, and if I do them a lot, I'm not going to have time and energy to focus on the really important things that God wants me to do. And that also allows vacuums to exist, because I'm not going to try to do everything for everybody every time, that allows other people who really should be doing some of those things, like worship team, to be involved in. Okay, so that's the the organization of the nation through Solomon. Now let's look at the blessing of the nation Israel through Solomon, verses 20 through 28. And let me read that from the New American Standard Bible. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river, that's the Euphrates River to the north, to the land of the Philistines, to the southwest, and to the border of Egypt. That's the Wadi of Egypt. Uh, they, these regions around Israel, paid tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal. Think of cores as roughly 55-gallon drums of uh, stuff, and you pretty much got it. Ten fat oxen, twenty pasture-fed oxen, a hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks. Is that seers and roebucks? And fattened fowl. For he, that is Solomon, had dominion over everything west of the river, west of the uh, west and south of the Euphrates River to his north, uh, from Tizpah even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river. And he, Solomon, had peace on all sides around about him. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, King David, for kind of setting this up and teeing this ball up for me. So Judah and Israel lived in safety. Every man under his vine and his fig tree. What does that mean, under your vine and fig tree? We'll talk about that. From Dan to the north, even to Beersheba to the south, all the days of Solomon. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. 12,000 horsemen. Those deputies, we call them governors, remember from the 12 uh, districts or states, provided for King Solomon and all who came to King Solomon's table, basically the executive branch of government based in Jerusalem, each in his month. 12 um, districts, 12 months in a year. Every district has one month to provide for this. They left nothing lacking. They also brought barley and straw for the horses and for Swift steeds to the place where it should be, each according to his charge. Okay, uh, when you read about the, uh, the the extension of the kingdom to this point, uh, the uh, the boundaries of Solomon's kingdom and his influence, it sounds a whole lot like Genesis fifteen eighteen. And if you go back a thousand years in round numbers before. Solomon's kingdom, you see as some of the foundational promises of the salvation work of God uh, being given to Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve, the uh, the Jews, specifically family, or I should say tribe of Judah, family of David through Solomon. You're getting these amazing things being fulfilled, and these they are mentioned in their initial seed form in places like Genesis 15, verse 18, where God uh, tells Abraham, uh, 
in verse 18, on that day, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of our salvation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Joshua, etc., made a covenant with Abraham saying, and this is a covenant of grant. This is just unconditional. Okay? This is foundational for everything else. The Mosaic covenant, which is designed as a Susan Revassal treaty, is built on the foundation of the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. But the Lord Yahweh told Abraham, to your descendants, even though you're too old uh, to father children and your wife is way too old to have children, you're going to have a child through your wife, Sarah. And that's going to be Isaac, and he's going to have Jacob, and he's going to have 12 sons, and we're going to get 12 tribes, and we're going to get a million-plus people out of Egypt, the incubator of Egyptian slavery, ultimately into the Promised Land under Joshua after Moses' generation dies out. And after the period of the judges, we're going to have kings, Saul, David, Solomon. That's where we are in First Kings. But, two th- but a thousand years before all of that, Solomon's reign, we read about the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham, And he says, to your descendants, I have given this land, this land tract called Canaan or Israel. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river Euphrates. And that's exactly, go back to 1 Kings 4, the the barriers, the boundaries of uh, Solomon's kingdom as described here in 1 Kings 4. So we're seeing fulfilled Bible prophecy in this description of this real estate. We read it like it's just mundane details. But in fact, it really is very important. Uh, notice verse 25, with control over all the relevant uh, kingdoms around him, Solomon was able to enjoy in his nation uh, an unprecedented period of peace and security. And so the statement in verse 25, each man sat under his own vine and fig tree, it was an idiom as it turns out. An idiom is kind of a, a statement that has a, uh, an understood meaning different than its literal meaning in a certain culture or language. My favorite English-American, uh, I guess we don't speak English, we speak Amlish. They speak English over in Great Britain. We speak American English, which is different. Um, you won't find it in any textbook. But um, my favorite Amlish, American English idiom is... Uh, it's raining cats and dogs, or it rained cats and dogs. Last night we had a big storm. Most of you probably woke up around 11.30 if you weren't already asleep. And we had as much as two or three inches of rain last night. Praise God for that. But we could say last night it was raining cats and dogs. And we don't mean small mammals are falling out of the sky. We mean it was just a torrential rain. So it turns out that that idea, that, that statement... To sit under your vine and fig tree was an idiom, kind of like raining cats and dogs, just referring to undisturbed prosperity, absence of war, stable social structure. Very interesting. If we had the time, we'd turn there. But in Micah 4.4, Micah, M-I-C-A-H, the Old Testament prophet, uh, in a passage talking about the millennial kingdom of Christ, the millennium under the Messiah, we're told that during the Messiah's kingdom, there'll be peace, there'll be st- stability, there'll be blessing, and every man will sit under his vine and his fig tree, meaning uh, there will be undisturbed prosperity. Wow. Got to love it. we got a lot to look forward to, folks. Cheer up. It's going to get worse, and then it's going to get a whole lot better. So we've seen the organization of the nation through Solomon, verses 1 through 19, the blessing of the nation through Solomon, verses 20 through 28, And now let's think about the blessing 
of the world, his world and our world, then and now. We're reading about him now, thanks to the fact the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of the book of Kings, first and second Kings in our English Bibles, has preserved it uh, providentially, the text, so we have a good translation on our laps here or on our phone or whatever we're doing, and uh, we can uh, benefit by... Uh, the lessons we learn from Solomon. Some of them are good lessons. Some of them are not so good lessons. But uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Right? Okay. The blessing of the world then and now through Solomon. Solomon was supernaturally given wisdom by God, chapter three, and yet over time this wisdom becomes even greater with experience uh, and uh, the uh, the uh, accumulated uh, knowledge that you build up as you go through life. Um, youth is wasted on the young. I can say that now that I'm an old guy, uh, even though I kind of resented that when people say that when I was young. But these verses, verses 29 through 34, talk about Solomon's renown, verses 29 through 31, his rhetoric, verse 32, his research, verse 33, and his reputation, verse 34. So look at verse 29 through 31. Now, God gave Solomon wisdom and a very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, including Ethan the Ezrahite, Haman, Kakol and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame, Solomon's fame, was known in all the surrounding nations. We're talking about Solomon's renown. He had greater wisdom than anybody else that was considered to be a wise person at the time. And these names such as Ethan the Ezraite uh, don't ring a bell for us, but trust me, in uh, this historical context, they would have been big. Uh, today, for various reasons, the Dalai Lama is the one religious person even secular, radical humanists love to love, you know. Um, and so, you know, today if somebody claimed to have great wisdom, they would compare him to Barack Obama, uh, Hillary Clinton, and the Dalai Lama, right? That would be the establishment take on it. Uh, anyway, and uh, if you see any political implications of what I'm saying, they're imaginary. I don't think about politics, but I am slightly to the right of Attila the Hun. But, uh, yeah, God gave Solomon great wisdom, greater than anybody else that would have come to mind in that culture as being wise. The sons of Mahal, uh, as it turns out, was a title for a guild of respected actors, musicians, songwriters, and playwrights. It wasn't uh, saying that these two guys were brothers necessarily, but that they were part of the artsy crowd that uh, were good at writing uh songs and plays and that kind of thing. And, and Solomon's wisdom wasn't just spiritual. It was across the board on all kinds of different areas, as we're going to see. Uh, talking about his literary and uh, rhetorical production, verse 32, Solomon's renown, now Solomon's rhetoric. Uh, Solomon spoke 3,000 Proverbs. We've got several hundred of those preserved in the book of Proverbs in your Old Testament and his songs were, were, excuse me, a thousand and five. Now, we've got the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. That was his best song, his, his uh, most distinguished song. But we also have two other songs that he wrote. 
Psalm 72 and Psalm 127 are Solomonic. He was the human author. And as you probably know, uh, the book of Psalms were songs. They were the hymn book of the tabernacle and the temple. They were written in Hebrew poetry, written to be sung. And so we have access to three of the 1,005 uh, songs in Proverbs, 1,005 songs that are mentioned here in 1 Kings 4.32, which means in the future, in the millennium, in the eternal state, to the extent we want to and need to, we can access the other 1,002. His renown, his rhetoric, his research, verse 33, Solomon spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. He was one of the very first, if not the first, research biologist. He's doing observational science, which as opposed to origin science is 99.99% of science, observable, repeatable, scientific method, uh, inductive method research. And Solomon realized by analyzing the creation and the creatures in the creation, you could learn a lot and appreciate more about the creator. And then his reputation, verse 34, uh, men came from all peoples, all the surrounding groups, uh, to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of Solomon, to pick his brain, to get his advice and his input and all kind of things. So people from all over the place were coming. And uh, that word for men there should be generic because we know in chapter 10 of First Kings we're going to see the queen of Sheba. She wasn't a man. She was a woman uh, interacting with Solomon uh, to gain the benefits of uh, some of his wisdom. That was the original trickle-down uh, theory of, uh, uh, of wisdom and uh, good thinking. Okay, that's First Kings chapter chapter 4. Get organized, get out of God's way. And uh, wise up kind of thing. Uh, let me close this way. Um, I think it's important for believers and churches and businesses run by Christians and anything, social clubs run by Christians, to, to have some kind of basic organization. Uh, not so much that you become coldly orthodox or it's all routine and it's all kind of going through the motions, but have some kind of organization based on and consistent with wise, godly priorities. Okay? Uh, 168, that's how many hours everybody gets. The question is, how are you going to prioritize your time and your life so you can have your best effort and your best energy and your best focus for the best things where you can major on the majors? I've suggested one way. I like to think about that. You may have different ways or better ways, but you need to have some kind of a uh, an approach to this or you're probably going to be wasting a lot of time. And... Um, Secondly, the cool thing about getting organized and really making sure to the extent you're able to do so that you're able to major on the majors and really invest the focus of your life on the things that uh, under God only you can do is it will help you get rid of any false guilt that a few of you tend to have because you want to help everybody on everything every time and you just are going to hit a wall sooner or later. And the older you get, the sooner you hit the wall. But it can allow you to get rid of the false guilt. Just punt away the false guilt that motivates a lot of Christians to do a lot of bad good works, good stuff for the wrong reasons, resenting it, or they may not resent it. They may not, they might like to go down to the food kitchen every Saturday morning, all day, but they got little kids that need daddy to stay home some Saturdays and play with them on the floor.
okay? Or to give mom a break so she can go shopping or take a nap or do something she needs to do. So that becomes bad, good work when you get your priorities out of, out of whack. Now you may get a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, warm fuzzies by going down to that, uh, rescue mission every Saturday morning when you're not plugging into your kids and your family and your wife like you should. Uh, and that may motivate you, but, uh, you know what? God has a wonderful plan for your life and it involves His priorities. Lots of other people have plans for your life too, including the guy running the rescue mission. As long as he can get you to come every Saturday, he's going to take that. But he doesn't have the ability to know what your priorities should be. I'm picking rescue missions just randomly. You can plug in whatever else you want to, good thing you want to plug in in front of the best things. But I, that's the big key, I think, uh, to living a good Christian life is being centered on Christ, making it relational, not mechanical, and getting your priorities set, even though that's going to ruffle some people's feathers sometimes, because some people who are like your 18th priority want you to be, uh, expect you to make them uh, your number one priority anytime they want it or need it or feel it, and you just can't live your life like that. So this allows you to get rid of the false guilt uh, when you have to say no to some good things you could do so that you can preserve time, energy, and attention for the very best things to do, and by refusing to fix everybody's problems all the time, that leaves those problems needing a fixer or a helper, and that opens up opportunities for other believers, maybe that aren't as uh, big of an achiever as you are, to actually get their feet wet helping with the rescue mission or something like that. Some young 20 single guy that doesn't have kids or a wife, maybe he should be going to Oklahoma City every Saturday instead of you going every Saturday and uh, not seeing your wife and your kids until the next Sunday morning, and you're grouchy because you've worked so hard, quote-unquote, for the Lord, and they're missing dad and husband. And I, I have nobody in, specifically in mind on that. It's kind of came to me. If I feel, if you feel like I'm stepping on your toes, especially if you're listening to this over the Internet, I don't know who you are, so I haven't been following you. But I did get a letter from your wife last week. No, I wouldn't supposed to say that. No, but seriously, let's wise up, let's get organized, let's get out of God's way. Let's give God our best. And we can do that with a little thinking and a little prioritizing. Okay? Let's close with a word of prayer.